Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The Wind Thieved Hat. I've enjoyed every one of the conversations I've had in the making of this series, but I think this is one of my favourites. It's with the sculptor Ivan Black. Ivan's work is probably best described as kinetic sculpture. I first saw it on Instagram where his videos often attract hundreds of thousands of views. His constructions are magical and mesmerising. They often have a fluid, dynamic form which behaves in rhythmical and beautifully unpredictable ways. His sculptures have been shown in galleries all over the world and I just can't stop watching them. On a cold, damp day, I rode out west on my motorbike to Ivan's place in Pembrokeshire in West Wales. We sat in his kitchen and talked about his life as an artist, about how he came to do what he does, and about an extraordinary burst of creativity over just a few days when he was younger, which still informs his work now. So why not make yourself a cup of tea, bring up Ivan Black's sculpture on Instagram, and sit back and enjoy episode 11 of The Wind Thieved Hat. Hello, Ivan. Hi. Thank you for inviting me down to your kitchen um, here in Pembrokeshire. You're very welcome. Tucked away in West Wales. Um, You didn't grow up here, though, in Wales, did you? Where where, where did you grow up? No, I grew up in London and um, moved here in 2001, age about 30, 29 at the time, yeah. It's, it's, it's quite a different environment to London, isn't it? It's very different, but it's sort of a home from home. I spent all my childhood holidays here, and I knew some kids growing up who you know, are now established here, and um, I always loved it. I never wanted to go back to London. You know, I always wished that I'd grown up here, so I wanted that from my own children when I started a family. And what was your, uh, what was your early mm. life like in in London, Where, whereabouts were you um, growing up? I grew up in West London. Okay. Yeah, in a very sort of artistic family. My mum was an artist, although the kids kind of put that on hold quite a bit. And um, I had interesting sort of bohemian parents. Um, my father was a, an oriental carpet dealer of some repute. Um, so the house was full of these amazing, you know, Eastern works of art and full of art and very kind of creative and slightly bohemian atmosphere. Sounds wonderful. It was, it was, yeah. Um, But I didn't love, you know, growing up in London really. It was, yeah, it was not for me. I much preferred being out in the countryside on the beach and so on, playing in the woods with my Pembrokeshire friends. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You've always had an, an inclination towards nature then? Yes, yeah. I've always loved yeah, being outdoors and playing around, making fires, camping, whittling, that kind of thing. We'll talk a little bit about um, the influence of nature on your work, I think, which is, which okay. is evident. But, um, but I'm curious about your parents then. So you, mm. your mum was, was, worked as an artist between looking after you and you. Yeah, well, more before before we came along, really. Okay. Because, um, yeah, she then threw herself into being a parent to eventually four kids. Um, but there is a, an interesting story about how my mum ended up in the UK because she's from Quebec. Okay. Um, and she was actually 
married uh, before she left Quebec and at art college in Montreal and um, she won a competition in 1969 I believe to the competition was to find the most promising contemporary artists in Quebec and she won second prize and um, quite a large sum of money at the time I think it was two thousand dollars which in 1969 was enough money to buy a house in Montreal. You know, wow. It was a small fortune. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, the piece of art that she made was, in many ways, I think of it as a sort of a kinetic sculpture. It okay. was a painting, um, and it kind of looked like a, an oil spill, if you like, on water, that kind of quite psychedelic kind of different colours, and it had these coloured gels and... Um, and a very early computer, a punch card computer, that rotated a series of coloured lights behind these gels to kind of make the colours of the painting change. Um, so she won this award, and then having fallen out of love with the lifestyle more than her husband, really, because he was much more of a hippie than she was, um, she decided to get on a plane and come to the UK. She knew one person in London um, and that person introduced her to my dad, and then that was how they got together. Um, so I sort of trace, in a way, my existence back to this kinetic painting that my mum did in 1969. You know, without that, maybe I wouldn't be here. Yeah, in more ways than one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. As, as a physical yeah. being and as an artist as well, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Do, yeah. Does that work still exist? It does, and I actually went on a sort of a pilgrimage to try to find it. Last time I was in Quebec, age about 17. We'd kind of gone as a family, but I said, right, I'm going to go off. I had this idea, this plan to go to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Quebec and find the painting. Track it down. Yeah. And I managed to, you know, to get there and get to the museum and find a person to talk to. And uh, unfortunately, they said that the curator in charge of the permanent collection, because the painting was, you know, in storage, not on display. We managed to find it in the big catalogue. Um, you know, was not was away for two weeks or something. So um, unfortunately, there was nobody who could take me down to show me oh, the painting. Man. I know, I know. But maybe, maybe another time. But you know, it's still to, there. I know it's still, it's still in the collection. Be yeah. great to get hold of it. Yeah, you know, yeah, bring that'd it be back. awesome. That'd be awesome. Maybe swap it for one. <laughs> yeah, do a, do a little trade. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, if, if, uh, if, if the curator of the uh, yeah. Quebec Gallery is listening, um, maybe, maybe it's touch. an idea. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, and, and it's interesting about your dad selling... So your dad sold yes. Persian carpets? That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, and they are... They're quite something, aren't they? I was mm. travelling back from London the other day and the, the bus happened to stop outside a a Persian carpet shop for quite a long time, roadworks right. or something. Yeah. And I found myself quite entranced by yeah. all the work and the detail and the stories within this um, mm. within this carpet. Do you, do you think it influenced you? I think so, but I sort of look back, you know, retrospectively maybe, you know, you sort of don't always know what influences you, I think. Sure. But I look back and think, you know, question, could that have been a factor? Because um, there's a lot of geometry in some of the tribal... You know, weavings um, that were in the house. My father uh, 
interestingly, and I think that this also has influenced me, was quite an idiosyncratic sort of, he was um, a bit of a pioneer in the carpet business. Um, so there's a famous, you know, there's a famous kind of milestone in, in the appreciation and business of um, Persian and otherwise oriental carpets is that my father and his partner at the time had a very famous exhibition in the Whitechapel Gallery called The Undiscovered Killim. And prior to that, Killims had not really been thought of as a, as an art form worthy of, you know, uh, a market in the oriental carpet business. And sometimes when you bought pile carpets or imported them, they would come wrapped in old kilims because they weren't considered to have the same value. Um, but my father thought differently and he collected a whole you know, collection of what he thought were amazing works of art and then had this exhibition, um, which was curated by Nicholas Sorota, amazingly. Really? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and there was a book that came with it, and the exhibition was a huge success, and the market in Killams exploded. You know. oh, so what, what is a Killam? A Killam is like a flat weave carpet, so rather than a tufted carpet, it's like more like a tapestry weave, you know, where they... I see. Um, yeah, they call them flat weaves. Um, and so our house was full of these amazing carpets, a lot of which are now in museums. Um, and, you know, now some of them are hugely valuable. Mm. If only you'd kept a couple of the best ones tucked away. Um, but it was an amazing, I think it was something that had made a lasting impression on me. Um, you know, I loved the carpets and still do. And there's a nostalgia now about carpets and the smell of the carpet shop was, was very particular. And I can call it to mind, you know, even when I talk about it in my brains, somehow there's a recollection of that smell and atmosphere and then um, one of my first jobs as a young man was working in my dad's workshop doing um, carpet restoration which was quite a fascinating process and that involved a lot of I mean carpets are made from almost like a a pixel kind of grid of points of colour that when you build up you get you know the, the larger more complex picture and arguably that's something that might have influenced my work because, you know, I use that technique a lot. Repetitions of kind of simple elements that, you know, it's when you build up the, uh, you know, the structure using the simple elements, that's when the complexity emerges. So, yeah, I think I was probably influenced and also influenced by my dad's propensity to try to always strike out on his own and you know break his own ground find his own paths into things and not be kind of led or influenced too much by by the pack if you like so you had that early exposure to the art world as well yeah you saw your dad's killums in the Whitechapel gallery and your Mm. mum had made work and yeah been reasonably successful so um, yeah i guess you had a sense that it wasn't a sort of a removed world, it was no. one that maybe you could one day be a part of. Yeah, um, I guess so. And I always, always enjoyed making things, and I'm sure that that was encouraged um, in my childhood. You know, my mum says that, I mean, Lego was the big thing, wasn't it? And again, ironically, that's a sort of <laughs> building up of complexity from simple elements. Um, 
and apparently whenever my mum asked me for Christmas or birthday, you know, what do you want? It was always Lego. That was just the standard response. I could never have too much. <laughs> just wanted more and more tools to work with, I suppose, more elements to add to my creations. And yeah, I'd kind of make, make the, um, the the design on the box once and then and then take it apart and then, and then freestyle. Off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always. Always the best way. Always. Yeah. I wasn't one of those kids who'd kind of make the models and then put them on the shelf. I always yeah. wanted to... You wouldn't glue them together. That's what some no. <laughs> definitely not. It's not the point, is it? No, definitely not. Yeah. So you, you were, uh, as a kid, you were, you were, you were making stuff already? You, yeah. Putting things together and... Yeah, in a playful way, I guess. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't eyeing up a career in the arts at that stage yeah. at all. I, you know, I don't even think that the things that I was making showed, you know, that much promise. I do remember I used to have this strange fascination with making sphinxes out of Lego, <laughs> which, um, you know, was pretty left field, I guess. Sphinxes? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Right. Some yeah. Egyptian influence yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know where it came from. I think I probably made one and then thought, right. you know, that was interesting and then... yeah. And then ended up making another couple of sphinxes. But the Lego <laughs> Sphinx niche. <laughs> yeah, pretty niche, definitely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess you could say that it was always attempting to find different ways, you know, different ways to use things, different little yeah. avenues, un- unexpected, you know, unpredictable. And did you, did you study art at college? Or? Yeah, so then I... I realised that it was something that I would want to, you know, would be interested in doing. There's that comes that period at school, doesn't there, where, where there's suddenly pressure to think about what you want to do with your life. And I didn't really know for quite a while. And then Who we does? Just, yeah. Who does it like? No. And then um, this pottery class started at school and me and a couple of my friends joined the pottery class, largely because the teacher was was very attractive. <laughs> Young women, and it was an old boys' school. Okay. You know? And, um, yeah, so we joined it for a laugh. I mean, I hadn't displayed huge promise at art, you know. I mean, I could draw a bit, but not like the people who could draw, you know, the ones who had an obvious natural talent for sure. it. Um, but we joined the poetry class, yeah, and it was just immediately obvious that, that um, I had some skill in making things, which is diff- interestingly, you know, quite a different skill from drawing. You know, as soon as I got my hands on some clay, it was just, it was easy, you know, it just seemed easy. And I could see everyone else was really struggling. And to me, it was just flowing. It was just, you know, straight away. It was like I hadn't had to learn it, you know, it was just like I knew, I felt like I knew how to manipulate the material. Right. Yeah. And it was a sort of, quite a moment, it's like, suddenly you find your thing, like, wow, this is actually, you know, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Wow, how old were you when you... I guess I was um, 16 or 17, I think. That's that's a good age to suddenly Mm. find a thing, isn't it? Yeah, great age. This this could be something for me. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I just knew then, almost immediately, it wasn't like, you know, it was just like, oh great, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a sculptor. (laughs) And uh, around the same time, I started playing around with wire, actually. And it was at a friend's house. I don't know what happened. I think we were 
you know, smoked a few joints and <laughs> and we found this um, roll of fuse wire and, you know, sitting around stone yeah. playing. Playing is, you know, key, isn't it? That's really yeah. um, where you kind of experiment and find your milieu. So we started making, just making simple things out of wire initially, just like really basic stuff, like two-dimensional flowers and I don't know. But, but it quickly kind of evolved and then I started, you know, then I realised I could pull a bit out and make it three-dimensional and I think that's always been um, an element of my working kind of method is that things evolve, you know. I always want to see what I can do next, you know. Like if I can do that, maybe I can do this. Or this suggests, you know, that there's something else, there's another... There's another piece to make, you know, that is an evolution of this piece. Yeah, so I was playing around with wire and then one day I just decided to try and make um, something with, you know, separate elements connected in some way and it was kind of like a mobile, my first mobile, I guess. And then um, a family friend saw this little mobile and said, have you ever heard of Alexander Calder? And I said, no, <laughs> who's that? And, yeah. yeah, and then looked him up and it was like, oh my God, this is just amazing. But, you know, not only is it amazing, but, and I love it, but, you know, I'm not going to be able to do that now, <laughs> you know, because it's already been done. And that was like a big thing for me and always has been really. It's always been like, you know, where is my, where's my little corner of it? You know, I, yeah. I felt like, He'd done it so well and so, you know, brilliantly and I loved it so much that I didn't even want to try and kind of emulate or copy. And although I was much inspired by his work, mm -hmm. um, I went more than into making kind of three-dimensional wire sculptures and, yeah, and they became more and more complicated and, and then eventually I started making um, articulated wire sculptures with, you know, like... Um, figurative pieces and portraits and self-portraits and um, yeah often with moving parts eventually I designed these quite sophisticated I thought ball and socket joints all made out of wire and you know connected by a spring right. and, and I made these kind of articulated crazy articulated sculptures but they were really kind of demanding difficult to work out and consequently quite um, challenging to complete a piece like that because it would be so it would almost hurt my brain trying to think yeah. about how I was going to finish it you know yeah. so I'd have things that were half made for a year and then I'd kind of <laughs> muster the uh, motivation to make myself do the other half of it um, you must have learnt a lot though about materials in that yeah period. I learnt a lot and then yeah so I'm getting ahead of myself a bit so yeah after having discovered that wire was a medium that I really enjoyed. It was clean, I could, you know, it was compact. All I needed was a roll of wire and some pliers and, you know, there was no mess really. I could do it in my bedroom, mm. which I did a lot. I'd sit in my bedroom and make little things out of wire. Then I started joining them, trying to solder bits together, but that was really hard because, especially with copper wire, you know, you'd make one joint and then try and make another joint and melt the last joint. <laughs> So, so that was difficult 
Um, Particularly if you're smoking a joint at the same time. Exactly, it, it, yeah. it doesn't, too doesn't, much. Yeah. doesn't help. Um, but yeah, I made some, you know, some interesting things and then decided, yeah, you know, cemented my plan that that was what I wanted to do. And then, um, yeah, and then found out that you could do a foundation course in art where you would go and try lots of different disciplines and found out there was a really good one in uh, Middlesex uh, Polytechnic at the time. So um, I went and applied for that and um, yeah, amazingly, I think I was one of few applicants who came with pieces of sculpture, you know, most people were coming with portfolios of drawing and so on. Sure. Um, and anyway, I got my offer, I got an unconditional offer, which I think was probably the norm, it wasn't that I was special, <laughs> it's just that they didn't care too much about what academic subjects that you uh, took for A-level, they were more interested in you know, what, what you might do in the arts. Sure. Um, so, yeah, and then I had a, still a, probably another year of A-levels, and, yeah, I did English and French and art, and um, was quite interested in all the subjects, um, and then did very badly. <laughs> I got, yeah, I got a D for art, which, okay. which is uh, interesting, because I thought, actually, <laughs> I thought I did some of my best drawing in my art A-level. Um, yeah. It's not uncommon, though, is it, for no. people who go on to be professional artists to do really no. badly yeah. in art A level? I've, I know. I've I know. found it's funny. Yeah, Damien Hirst famously got an A, didn't he? So That's he's, right. He yeah. did one better than me. <laughs> um, yeah, and then afterwards, my art teacher said, "Oh, it's a shame we didn't uh, make one of your pieces a piece of sculpture." And I said, "Hey, tell me." Right. Um, not that it mattered at all. So I went to Middlesex and then, yeah, it was a mixture of drawing and then printmaking and, you know, clay and wood and wire and, you know, all sorts. And it was amazing and I really enjoyed it. And um, I continued to kind of be interested in making kinetic things. And I remember going into the workshop and um, they had a bunch of wire and then they had this machine this amazing, miraculous machine called a spot welder, where you just cross the wires in between the kind of calipers of the machine and press a handle, and and it would melt the two wires together. Mm. And to me, that was like, oh my god, this is where's this machine? It could have been invented, you know, to help me do the things that I wanted to do with the wire. Right. Um, so yeah, couldn't believe that, but also did you know all kinds of other work, all of which I enjoyed, and all of which you know just felt so natural you yeah, know? Yeah. everything I picked up just felt right you know and, yeah um I would say that you know objectively I was finding a lot of it a lot easier than other people on the course you know the things I was making um yeah I was getting good results in most of the things I was trying I guess but I was also very bloody minded and <laughs> stubborn and struggling with uh, the pressure to kind of to do what the tutors wanted me to do mm. and that's been a bit of a theme of my life not that you know I wasn't deliberately um, difficult I don't think it was just that I always wanted to do things my way and that that didn't really chime with you know with being the teaching environment I suppose mm. Mm. Um, so I did argue a lot with my tutors. It's probably stood you in quite good stead though, hasn't it? A, 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 a certain, yeah. 
belief in your own direction is hmm. is something that one needs, I think, to navigate a professional art career. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's maybe not, it's not not always easy, is it? It's not easy, and they, um, you know, you get challenged a lot at, at uh, college to justify why you're doing what you're doing and so yeah. on. And it was funny. It was much more of a gut thing. It wasn't a deliberate. It wasn't a conscious decision, like, I'm going to do my own thing. It was just like a feeling of discomfort when I was being pushed into directions that didn't feel, um, you know, like where I would naturally um, find myself or being criticised for, you know, doing work that they didn't consider to be, I suppose, commercial. Or I know that they were trying to give you a grounding in the arts that would help you to confront those difficulties that you mentioned, you know, the difficulties of the market and the questions that the market might ask. And mm -hmm. you know, I just wasn't really interested in, in going down that road of, you know, trying to do work to, you know, to, to please whatever the conventional wisdom might be. And then I look back to my dad and see how he kind of forged his own path and think that, you know, probably genetic isn't it <laughs> as well as you know it's the nature and nurture things you know grown up in that in that uh, culture and and also inherited his you know genetically his maybe idiosyncrasies yeah. yes and yeah. so uh, after college if we if we sort of mm. from college to to now you've, you've mm. been making work sculpture uh, well after college, um, I did go and look at then degree courses and so on. And what I saw, or what I thought I saw, was some lovely colleges, but um, a lot more of this kind of, almost like a, a house kind of style of work. And it was all conceptual at the time. Everybody was making conceptual work. And that just wasn't really... I can't say it's not something that interested me, it just wasn't really the way that my mind worked, you know, it wasn't a natural way of expressing myself to me. I didn't kind of have those ideas and I didn't want to kind of try to force myself to have those ideas or question the worth of the ideas I was having. I just kind of wanted to, to make stuff without pressure, outside pressure, I suppose. I didn't really care if it was commercial or not or... You know, I wasn't thinking at that stage, you know, I'm going to set the world alight with my <laughs> sculpture. I just wanted to make things, really. And, yeah, I have a sort of slightly nuanced um, relationship with how I define myself as, you know, a creative person. I don't, I'm not even sure if I am an artist or only an artist or even if those definitions mean anything or are important, you know. I just like making things so we went to look at various colleges and I tended to find that yeah they had this seemingly um, yeah very conceptual bent in, in the work that students were making and so I decided not to apply you know and, and the other thing was that it didn't seem like there was a lot of teaching going on apart from this kind of abstract sort of guidance and what I really wanted was to be taught how to make things better, how to use tools, how to manipulate materials, you know. I wanted to learn the practical skills, but those seemed to be very undervalued, almost discouraged in 
in the colleges at the time. You know, maybe if I'd looked a bit harder, I could have found that mm. sort of place. So I decided to just do anything that would teach me skills, and I just figured that I would benefit from becoming skilled. It didn't really matter in what medium, if, as long as it was sort of using my hands. You know. So I did the carpet restoration and, you know, travelled a bit, went to India for most of the year, which was amazing. Um, and then got a job as an apprentice carpenter and, yeah, ended up doing that for eight years, you know, becoming quite good, kind of graduating to cabinet making and so on. But again, kind of teaching myself a lot because I worked for a guy within about a year or two years, you know, I'd kind of taken over doing the making and he was, you know, instructing me, but with little kind of nuggets of, you know, of information rather than a structured kind of teaching of this is how you do the things. And that suited me down to the ground because I was able to, you know, learn things by myself, which I suppose has really always been my great pleasure is kind of figuring things out for myself. Um, I remember there was a key moment where <laughs> um, he was sharpening one of his chisels and I was quite fascinated by this and I was watching it and, and I said to him, you know, how do you learn how to sharpen a chisel? And he said, uh, well, in the old days, you know, you'd, uh, the foreman on site would give the apprentice 20 chisels and say, go away and sharpen these. And he would go away and come back and uh, then the foreman would say, 19 of these aren't sharp and give them back and you'd have to go and do them again and you'd go and doing that until until you, you know, <laughs> until you mastered it. Yeah. And I was just thinking, that's to that, I'm not having that. <laughs> <laughs> so I just watched him, you know, really carefully watched yeah. what he was doing, you know, and then, you know, took away one of the chisels and just copied as closely as I could what I'd seen, you know, and, and came back and then... <laughs> I mean, I can't even remember if he was amazed or not, but, you know. Let, let, let's say he was. It yeah. sounds better I like to think he was. Gobsmacked. Yeah. His jaw like hit the floor. I like to think he was. Yeah. Um, certainly it was sharp. And that was the thing about, yeah, watching and repeating and, yeah. I don't know, I don't know what it is that makes um, a person skilled or not. You know, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I think... Um, a lot of it is intent, a lot of it is determination to do something well. You know, if you don't have that determination, then I don't think you'll ever develop the skill because you'll never care enough. So anyway, yeah, did this carpentry and still making sculptures in my own time, um, but fairly irregularly. And, you know, going out a lot and having a great time. And, yeah, interestingly, for that whole period, I'd just had totally forgotten about Pembrokeshire and... Right. Okay, London. Yeah. London was the place to be then. Sure. You know, I was young, and it was uh, it was the rave era, and you know, yeah. it was just an amazing time of freedom. And it was quite it suited me to have this job that I could go and you know work all week and get paid, and yeah. um, still feel like I was learning stuff, but not have that pressure of having to kind of you know and success on my own terms, which yes, is yeah. a difficult, you know, proposition, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so then, uh, yeah, then we get back round to, yeah, 
falling out of love with London and and I came down to Pembrokeshire for a family friend's funeral and went to one of the childhood beaches and yeah, I'd had some strange times in London, you know, the gloss had come off it and and I remember just lying down on this beach which was a sort of childhood favourite spot and just resting my head on the pebbles and the smell of the and the nostalgia and it all just hit me like a train, you know. And I just suddenly realised that I was ready for a different kind of life. So, and yeah, it was after that that I invited my girlfriend at the time to come camping down here a couple of times. And we had a magical, you know, this magical time both times. And I remember going back like mahogany coloured, having spent <laughs> 10 days outdoors, even though I actually drizzled, you know, most of the time, both times, but just from being outside for, you know, yeah. All those hours we'd gone yeah. so dark, the pair yeah. of us. We looked like a couple of urchins, you know, <laughs> on the train on the way home. But it felt so free and you know, yeah. happy. And so we plotted this uh, move to Pembrokeshire. And um, yeah, before we left, we had a big exhibition. It was a three man exhibition because my brother's a painter. Okay. And we had the exhibition in my dad's gallery. And we called it Three Colours Black. And uh, I showed the collection of work that I'd made in my own time and over a kind of 10-year period. And my dad had, you know, a collection of carpets and my brother's paintings. And, uh, yeah, it was a great event, really fun. And my stuff sold pretty well. I sold, like, you know, most of the stuff. And... Um, and just thought, well, it's now or never, really. Right. It? How old were you at this point? Um, 29, I guess. Okay. So you've got a good, good decade of yeah. doing the sort of carpentry and mucking yeah. around at weekends. and Exactly. Time to change gear a bit. Yeah, yeah. And um, after we left, there was one, one client who'd been a client of mine when I was doing the carpentry, or a client of my boss, but we'd worked for him a lot, and I'd become friendly with him. And, um, yeah, he hadn't managed to make it to the exhibition and you know, expressed disappointment or whatever. And then one night I'd been not able to sleep and lying in bed ruminating about another sculpture that I'd made, which was one of my kind of few kind of Calder-esque, I would describe, mobiles. But it did this interesting thing where it was kind of a traditional called a type mobile where you have a kind of cantilevered arm and then another cantilevered arm and, and it formed a sort of spiral but it did this thing where if you twisted it it would line up kind of straight and then when you let go it would fall back into the spiral mm. shape and I thought that, that was really interesting um, but I was frustrated by the fact that it was a sort of finite thing because the more parts you added, the parts had to get longer or the counterweight had to get heavier to balance the rest of the sculpture that was hanging from it. So it had this kind of, it was a self-limiting kind of design and it was in trying to solve that problem that I had a eureka moment where suddenly, you know, I thought, okay, I almost quite broke it down in my mind, you know, like, um, what is it that I'm trying to achieve, which is to, you know, get rid of this limiting factor and what's the cause of the limiting factor is the fact that you know each part is counterweighting the other parts 
so what's the solution? And then, you know, then it just came to me that the solution is to hang each part from its own center of gravity. <coughs> and then I th you know, thought, well, what would that mean? And well, you have to hang them in a chain, and, and each part is balanced where it intersects the chain. So I had the idea, and I said to this chap who hadn't been able to make it to the exhibition, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I've got this idea that I really want to try out, you know, I've got this new idea, I haven't made it yet, but I think it's going to be great. Um, you know, would you be interested if I make it? And he said yes, and that was a good motivation to do it then. Then I tried about three different techniques for how to make the chain. I was trying to make each link out of a single piece of wire and then somehow connect them, but that didn't go too well. And so it took about three attempts and then eventually I realized, you know, get the spot welder into play and made yeah. the link separately and welded them to a crossbar and then just put kind of two simple elements on the each end of each arm. So it was just like a series of crossbars, like a ladder formation right. almost. And in the center of each, there was um, a kind of double chain link. And then each one would connect to the next. And so I made about half a dozen of these and then, you know, on the table and picked it up and twisted it. And it seemed to be doing exactly what I wanted it to do. So then I thought for fun, right, I'm going to make, you know, make a whole section of it before I kind of really, you know, I wasn't going to make keep adding a piece and checking each time. I, just, yeah. I decided to make like, the whole thing. Yeah. So I made the whole thing and then hung it up. Um, and one of the key things that I'd done was I'd put a slight twist in each link so that when it hung, it would hang in a kind of helix shape yeah. because I was trying to replicate this spiral from the previous sculpture. So then I hung it up from a piece of fishing line and gave it a, gave it a spin, you know. And then it just did something that was so infinitely more dynamic than what I expected. Just the way that it changed, but it didn't just change, it just kept changing. Yeah. You know? And and I called my girlfriend and I was like, Lucy, Lucy, come and come out. and check this out. Yeah. It's crazy. And then we were like just amazed. You know, it was so it was such a sort of wow. visually exciting thing. Yeah. We just thought, wow, this is something, you know, this is yeah. this is a moment, you know, you yes. could feel it. Yes. And it was a moment for me particularly because it was like the area that had always been dear to my heart in a way, but I'd never been able to find my own, you know, my own direction in it. It was suddenly like, this is it. This is, wow. this is how I'm gonna, you know, this is what I'm gonna explore now. You know, no one else is doing this. So this is my doorway into that world. And, that, and this, that moment, you see hmm. the influence of that moment in, in the work you make today, don't you? Absolutely. I still use that mechanism, you know, I still use it and yeah. So was, it, was it an accident then, do you think? Or? No, I don't think so. No, no. But it was, it was this, you know, it was uh, similar to how I continue to work, which is that I took the element that interested me about this one sculpture yeah. and I extrapolated on it, you know, I, yeah. I evolved it into something else. You could say that the dynamism of it was. Um, a happy accident in a way, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I couldn't know yeah. quite yeah. how dynamic it would I suppose be it's like, it's like an unexpected outcome mm. of a mm. process, isn't it? Like you, you were working mm. on that process, but maybe you'd not realised that it was going was to yeah. do the thing that it did. No, nor really that it would be 
you know, the beginning of a journey, I suppose. I mean, I kind of thought, well, here's something of my own, you know, something. Mm. And in fact, I didn't immediately think that. My mm. first thought was, well, this is just too obvious to be, you know, unique. I can't be the only person who's thought of this. This is just too, you know, it's yeah. too simple. It was so simple, you know. Um, and so, and, you know, I showed it then to, in fact, I didn't immediately show it to anyone because what happened next was we moved to Pembrokeshire and we moved to... There was nobody to show it to. No, which was a good thing. We moved to the north of Pembrokeshire to this little cottage that was incredibly remote, you know, it makes yeah. this place feel <laughs> feel like, yeah, like it's in the centre of a big city compared to where we were there, just in the middle of the fields. And um, the idea then suddenly caused this sort of explosion of possibilities. You know, I'd made this piece, but I just immediately thought, well, I thought of, you know, five other things that I could do with it by changing the elements on the ends of the arms, varying the, varying the length of the arms, you know. And it was just like every day I had a new idea to, for what I could do with it. And... Um, they were quick to make as well, so I was churning out these sculptures, these different variations, and it was an amazing feeling to be so inspired. Great. Yeah, and we were there for three months, and I made like probably 15 wow. new you know, ideas. That must, that must have been really exhilarating to It was incredibly exhilarating, <clears throat> and I'm still going back and kind of, exploring ideas that I had at that time you know I still yeah. I've, I've never had another time like that of such a an explosion of creativity you know it was just flowing you know it's just unbelievable I just couldn't stop thinking of what to do next with it do you, do you think <clears throat> there were particular conditions to do Absolutely. with your life at the time that Absolutely. Ended? you know we we didn't have any kids, obviously that helped. You know, we yeah. didn't have a TV. Um, we had some money in the bank. You know, it was just a unique moment of total creative freedom. There was no pressure. I didn't have to sell the things. Um, you know, there was no distractions. There was no stress. It was just, um, it was just fun and sounds idyllic. It was. It was, and you know. I've had I've had moments since then of creative breakthroughs that have also opened up you know whole new avenues to explore. But but you know it's always been within the much more complicated reality of you know being a parent and having a mortgage and yeah. a career and yes. you know yeah yeah. So after that we um, we brought the sculptures to London and showed them to some people we knew, including one of my friend's dad was a kinetic sculptor, Peter Logan, who I, who I really admired and looked up to, you know, and he introduced us to some people and then next thing you know, um, it looked like everything was gonna take off in a big way. But, you know, life is more complicated than that, isn't it? And yeah, I had a sculpture and an exhibition organized by the Cass Foundation that was in the Peggy Guggenheim museum in Venice um, and we got married and then two weeks later I broke my leg which was 
very poor timing, and then and ended up going to Venice with my with my leg in this horrible oh, no. kind of scaffolding contraption right. called an external fixator. Right. Um, Kinetic sculpture. Almost, sorts. almost became yeah, an embodiment of. I was <laughs> turned into a wire sculpture. Yeah. Um, and somebody saw the the sculpture and asked if I could make one that was seven and a half meters tall um, for a stairwell in his house, you know. And I said, I don't see why not, but you know, I've never attempted anything like that, so you know, I'm not going to say definitively that I can do it, but yeah. I'd love to try. Yeah. And yeah, he was willing to take the punt, and you know, and I and I made this sculpture, and and it was just, you know, it was. Just, installed it and set it going and it was just amazing it was you know it was a triumph it was probably still remains one of the best things i've ever made you know? wow. and he he loved it and and you know he he was a really serious collector and his house is full of you know uh, amazing works from old masters to picassos and wow. pizarros and bonnard and you know yeah so i suddenly felt like you know i'd been accepted into into this world, yeah. And I was talking to galleries, and you know, there was a big New York gallery came over to to see this sculpture in the house, and you know, it was a sort of the father who um, had represented George Rickey, who was a famous kinetic artist who I really admire, and he really liked it, you know, to the point that he sent his son, who is now his partner in the business, to also come and see this and a few other things that I had made and it, and it was sort of poised you know like if they say yes then it's you know, yeah go away but they said <laughs> the sun I think vetoed it oh no yeah um, and that was quite a blow yeah and then yeah and then having had this kind of great flurry of early success reality kind of crept in you know which is that it's actually really really difficult <laughs> Yeah. to do and you know really difficult to do anything different as well you know and yeah. the galleries are brutal places and yes you get knocked back a lot and you know so how did you deal with the you know you you, you were sort mm. of surfing a wave like it sounds mm. like at that point in your life mm. and then when, when, when the sort of the wave broke on the beach yeah I don't think not amazingly well I don't think you know I think I kind of retreated into my shell creatively a bit and I can kind of see times when when there were setbacks when then you know my work would suffer I think because I would you know I'm not the most naturally confident person so you know I couldn't just shrug it off it impacted on what I was making um and yeah the, the, the kind of outpouring of creativity, the time when it had been so easy, sort of ground to halt a bit. And yeah. Um, but I was still selling stuff and we were supporting ourselves from it. It's just that we were poor all the time. <laughs> you know, we were broke. Yeah. And we were having kids, and, you know, it wasn't the only thing in my life, but it was still how I was trying to earn money. And it was very, very difficult at times. And yeah, I, I I carried on trying to get in the galleries and stuff like that, and just had some really difficult experiences. And um, eventually, I just stopped stopped trying. Just decided to do it, you know, 
in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one of the worst things was going into a gallery. I, I, I approached a guy who I had met before at a, an art fair and showed him a video of a new sculpture that I'd made, which I was really excited about. It was, it was another evolution from the chain, but um, it was kind of, in a way, the genesis of Square Wave. I called it Nautilus, and yeah, it's another one that's been widely, widely shared on Instagram now. Um, and he's, and I showed him the little video of it moving, and he really liked it. I knew he showed some kinetic art in his gallery. This is the Beaux-Arts Gallery in Cork Street. And he said, oh, you know, why don't you come in and, and we'll have a meeting. And, you know, I was really excited. And so I thought I'd take the sculpture and show it to him and brought it into the gallery and, you know, went into his office or whatever and opened the box and took out the sculpture and, and, and showed it to him. And he was like, oh, but I've already seen that. And then I just showed him the video on the little screen on, of my right. phone, you know. Um, and I was, and I thought, oh well, you know, I thought it was a really different thing, you know, a different thing to see it in real life than to see the video. Sure. We chatted a bit. I showed him pictures of other things, and you know, but ultimately they they already had a kinetic artist, and um, uh, it was Daniel Chadwick, a son of Lynn Chadwick, who's you know who I'm very friendly with. Um, and I think they thought that it was probably just you know they didn't need another one. And then I was packing up my work and this junior gallery girl um, just sort of absentmindedly said to me, you know, this thing about your stuff is, uh, you know, is it art or is it craft? Um, You know, which was a brutal thing to say to somebody who has brought their piece of work into an art gallery. You know, obviously I thought it was art, but, you know, in fact, I don't really know if I did think it was art or whether that's important. You know, and I said to her, you know, I don't, I'm not really clear about the definition between the two, you know, because I've always kind of thought that in a way. Why has the craft been sucked out of art? It's a bit, it wasn't always that way. You know, it was always a central part of creativity was your ability to actually make stuff beautifully or paint beautifully. Um, and I remember telling my client who had the huge sculpture in his house about it and he was outraged you know he said that's he said she should be sacked (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and that was the end of my attempts to get into galleries anyway have you resolved that sort of relationship Um, then because because it's interesting isn't it that you you know your work is uh, your work is art and it it's in galleries I suppose work in galleries becomes art, but at the same time you've got the lighting studio, yeah. Yeah. which is is selling lights that can be used in a commercial or a domestic setting. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just don't really like to put limitations on what I'm doing, and I think that the the, um, the fascination, maybe it's something we haven't really touched on yet, is you know why why kinetic art? You know what is it about kinetic art? And I ask myself that question. I've always enjoyed making things in lots of ways, you know, and I think there's lots of directions I could have possibly ended up going in. You know, I like making figurative art and I like wood carving, I like working with clay and, you know, but there's something unique about kinetic art, which is that it's a sort of multidiscipline 
I think it's like a multidiscipline um, area to explore because it has elements of invention and craft and art and design and all, all kind of mixed together in one medium, if you like. So I think that was what what set it as, uh, apart for me, that it would maintain my interest because it wasn't one thing, it was many, mm. you know. Yes, yes. And you've, as we've discovered during the course of our conversation, you, mm. you've always seemed to have had quite a clear sense of the, the kind of work you want to make and mm. uh, what you yeah. want to be spending your time doing. Well, that's another interesting, that was quite a conscious thing, actually, um, because I have always liked making just making things and probably if there hadn't been a prerogative to try to make a career out of it I wouldn't have worried about um, sticking to one discipline uh, but so it was kind of a conscious decision like I just I thought and maybe rightly as it's turned out that you know to to achieve success that I would need some kind of identity and that I would need to kind of work within I wanted to kind of create a, a body of work that would be recognisably mine, if you like, that would be, you know, um, that people would be able to, you know, identify my work, um, that it would, you know, come under a sort of, uh, uh, I don't quite know how to... So it felt coherent as a... Yeah, as exactly, a yeah, like a coherent, yeah body of work exactly um, and that was yeah a very conscious decision yeah stick to this make it you know as good as you can make it coherent and build up a body of work um, so that's what I did and at times I've questioned the wisdom of that when I've kind of reached what felt like kind of creative dead ends you know there have been times when I've thought I've explored everything. <laughs> I've explored every avenue uh, of this, and I can't actually think of now where else to take it. And you know, and you know, it is a difficult career path, isn't it? There's been numerous occasions when I've thought, I want to do something else now. This is too, it's too hard. I've you know, I've had yeah. enough. Yeah, I yeah. want to just do something. I mean, there must be an easier way to make money. Is it your main source of income then? It's our only source of income, yeah. yeah. As a family? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. and tax credits probably yeah. saved our lives. If it hadn't been for tax credits, it'd probably be fit in kitchens yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I thank the government for some things. Yeah, yeah, I'm very eternally grateful for that. But things have turned around a lot, you know, in the last few years. Yeah. Um, since exhibiting in Australia and, yeah. Um, so I got, I got, I got a, there's a, a clip of you mm. talking about Golden Section yeah. on the beach in mm. Cottesloe and it's funny it's only a short clip but yeah. you sort of get a sense of relief from you <laughs> that's <laughs> at, interesting at, at that moment that yeah. I, I sort of had a sense watching it that that, that, was yeah. a, that was a big event for you it was a huge event yeah it's interesting you pick up on that yeah because like I say, it has been very challenging at times. I'm sure I would not be the only artist to to say that. Um, and, yeah, sometimes it's really felt like I've been swimming against the tide, you know. So to have that endorsement... I remember when I was interviewed immediately after um, 
it was announced that the sculpture had been selected for the acquisition prize, which is where the um, the borough of Cottesloe um, acquires one of the sculptures from the exhibition. I think there was 79 sculptures in the exhibition, so for my piece to be chosen was quite a big thing. And when they announced the prize, I had to go up onto the podium and, and talk, um, have a sort of acceptance speech, it was quite comical. And one of the first things that came to mind, I just said, you know, it's been a, a long journey to get to this point. And then, you know, I merely thought, in more ways than one. Yeah. Because not only was I on the other side of the world, but, you know, just to, just to have not given up yeah. for that long, you know. Yeah. Sometimes seemingly against insurmountable odds. You know? Yes. Um, so I really felt like an endorsement or, yeah, yeah, a justification for all of that. What I'd put my family through as well of, yeah. you know, being broken, being down at times. And, sure. I think yeah. it's the, um, it's sort of the, the, the untold story of most artists' lives, isn't it? I, mm. I, I think unless you are actually trying to make work and, and make a living by it or, or live with somebody who does, mm. you don't really appreciate, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the wilderness that, <laughs> that, that, that people can spend a lot of time in. And it requires yeah. quite strong reserves, doesn't it? To, yeah, it's to brutal. It's brutal. And I think, you know, the prerogative to keep earning money to, to feed the family and maybe living here as well. The fact that there, are, there aren't like unlimited other avenues that, <laughs> that can earn your living. Um, it's probably a factor in my perseverance, you know, that sense of responsibility to, right. to the family. Had you, had you lived somewhere else where it was easier to slip into maybe paying work than you might have? Maybe, although I don't know that or maybe I'm not. a very good employee. <laughs> not that I wasn't a, a bad employee, but that, not that it's something that has ever yeah. that I've ever felt happy or comfortable doing. Yes. Um, how, yeah. how important is your relationship in in sustaining you through? Uh, Massively important. You know, my wife has been just so patient. You know, and she comes from a a family of high achievers who are all very successful, um, very wealthy. You know. And and she's she's lived with me now, you know, in poverty for years. Uh, we've been much, you know, we've been supported by her family as well. So that's that's a factor, you know. That's they helped us to to buy our house, and you know, so that can't be discounted. That's a big part of the story as well. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the work. Um, yeah. Uh, specifically. Um, so I, I, I recently read um, mm. the, the uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci. Right. I don't know if you've come across this. No, it's, um, no. it's uh, for a biography of Leonardo da Vinci. It's, it's a bit of a page turner. It's, right. it's very reasonable. Yeah. But I, I was reading this and I was thinking about coming down here, and it struck me that um, there were some similarities. <laughs> Between you and Da Vinci, right? Uh, um, obviously, could... he wasn't available for the podcast. Like that. <laughs> uh, um, but no, I suppose in the sense mm. that he was a man who seemed fascinated by nature right. and by patterns yeah. in nature, and mm. by the, the, his curiosity to explore and investigate the natural environment mm. led to um, 
some of the techniques and um, approaches that he brought to his art. Yeah. And I think looking at your work, mm. you know, one immediately sees um, forms that, that we're familiar with through scientific textbooks and, mm -hmm. and, and, and this kind of thing. Mm. Um, is, I, am, I, am I barking up the right, right tree here? Um, well, I think I'm probably going to have to disappoint you a little bit just um, <laughs> because I wouldn't say that I um, outwardly, you know, look for inspiration in nature or natural geometry, although, you know, I am, I don't know, it's difficult to, it's difficult to explain, but I think, you know, a bit like da Vinci maybe, I am fascinated by patterns and, and also by working in different disciplines, you know, so mm. by, maybe I'm creatively, uh, um, I easily, easily bored, I suppose, uh, you know, I always want to find ways to maintain my interest. But as far as the patterns go, I mean, I think that my work sort of evolves rather than I don't look at. I mean, it's it's probably quite complicated, really, isn't it? I mean, I do look at geometry and I look at geometry and scientific textbooks and sacred geometry and things, but in quite an abstract way. I don't kind of generally look at it and think, right, I'm going to make a mm. sculpture based on that pattern. It's more like absorbing the kind of inspiration. Maybe the same is true with nature. But it's more like in a piece of work, you know, the way the whole initial... Um, my first kinetic mechanism came about was that I saw something that I thought was interesting and that's something that I'd made and then decided to extrapolate on that to make the next piece. And it's been like that, like a process of evolution. So each piece would almost, you know, focus in on one element of it that was not the central element of the sculpture, but that I thought could be made the central element of the next sculpture. So the sculptures have, evo have evolved and I've always been looking for um, things that resonate with me, you know, and it's been a happy coincidence that they obviously resonate with other people as well. So there's something about some of the patterns that we are drawn to or that we mm. respond to and we don't necessarily know why. Um, the golden I don't know ratio. Why. Yeah. That was interesting. That's probably the only thing where I did take a kind of classic piece of kind of a geometric, you know, iconic design and try to turn it into a kinetic sculpture. And that then led to another whole set of new designs. Yeah. Um, which are related but dissimilar. Yes. Another thing about the work is, um, uh, by virtue of being kinetic sculpture, mm. there's a sort of element of time, isn't there? there yes. You, they're, they're like animations. There is this yeah. dynamism. Mm. And um, I was showing my kids this morning your work on Instagram. Yeah. And uh, I think what they were enjoying, they're, you know, they're eight and 11, they're still quite young. What they were enjoying about it was the... Um, there is an apparent sort of sequence of motion, mm -hmm. but then there is a, a different sequence of motion, and mm. there's, there's almost like a mini narrative yeah. in, 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 in the movement. Yeah, yeah, and there's a performance element, I yes. think, as well. And you know, the videos that have had the most interest on Instagram have nearly always been the ones where I'm playing with the sculpture. I don't know what, what it is about that that makes it, I guess it's the human element, isn't mm. it? Um, 
Yeah, the narrative element and the surprise, I think, is yes. a key is a key thing. And I think and that, as, I, as I, you I, had I, that initial moment yeah, of surprise all yeah. those years ago, maybe I'm <laughs> spent the rest of my career trying to recapture that or to try to kind of impart that to my audience, if you like, to give them that kind of same feeling of you know pleasure yeah, yeah. Yes. to give pleasure. You know, is yeah. is that. Uh, uh, a sufficiently lofty ambition, you know. I, in I, mine's I, eye, I, I, don't I, know. I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it is. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it is that little moment of pleasure, isn't it, when something happens in a way that yeah. is unpredictable. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Instagram's interesting, isn't it? Because mm. yeah. you've, you've obviously um, uh, been working, making work since before Instagram. Yeah. And yeah. now Instagram. Yeah. In some respects, is the reason I'm here because I yeah. first saw you work there. Right? How, how, how is your relationship with with social media? Yeah, well, it's complicated, it's, isn't it? You know, it's it's a, it's an interesting um, and surprising uh, fact that my stuff just works particularly well on social media. You know, they're, they're short little clips of moving, you know, dynamic, interesting visual effects that you know people really respond to um but i only actually went on instagram maybe three years ago i first opened my account and it was my sister um who talked me into doing it she works in the arts she's actually got a gallery in london now um i didn't really want to do it and you know i certainly didn't want to spend time on it so she said you know just send me a bunch of photos and i'll post one every day and you know, and then the following grew very slowly at first, um, and you know, this time last year I think I had two and a half thousand followers. You know, which felt like a a nice. I had a lot of loyal people who always really liked the things I was posting and so on. Um, but then it just exploded. You know, one thing went viral, and you know, and then suddenly the followers were going up just at an incredible pace. You know, now we're up to. Uh, hundred thousand or something a year later and that's just been by virtue of yeah it just took on a momentum of its own and the things got shared you know sculptures went viral um yeah not really through any kind of calculated approach on our part it's just uh yeah there was no social media strategy no not at all no although you know once it starts you kind of learn how to keep that momentum going yeah. and so on and yeah and it has had a transformative effect on the amount of business that I'm getting now and interest coming sure. in and, yeah but on the downside it's a huge distraction isn't it and mm. um, yeah and through that and the complicated you know and big projects that I'm working on I find myself you know not doing the core part of my creative work which is just being in the workshop kind of experimenting making new things you know or certainly not nearly as much as I would like getting further and further away from that you know time of um, creative freedom that kick-started the whole career and do you yeah. have a do you have a regular sort of schedule do you um, do you, do yeah. you, do you how, how do you work um, well because I do so many different things in my work you know it's not it's hard to have a very regular schedule at the moment I'm doing a lot of you know 
design work for big projects, kind of mechanical design and motors and yeah, um, talking to structural engineers and doing drawings on on software and so on and you know it's a very important and key part of the job and not without its kind of interest from the point of view of problem solving and design and so on yeah um yeah but yeah i always work from sort of nine to five and yeah i've got a couple of people helping now um, okay which has been yeah which has been key really to just being able to um, deal with a sudden, sudden surge of interest and you know, expansion of the business. It's grown yeah. by you know, turnover has gone up by probably a thousand percent in in a year, and it's like a I don't know if that can continue. Do you, um, do you think that's driven by by the Instagram success? Is it Instagram and Facebook? Yeah. yeah, there's quite a few. I don't know if you've seen those like compilation videos have been made. Um, of various sculptures and you know some of those have had staggering amounts of views like 15 million views and yeah it's crazy to think about and amazing to think i mean you know it's it's too early to say that this can continue who knows um but at the moment it feels like you know can it really be that from this quiet little corner of pembrokeshire yeah that we might have been able to actually successfully create you know a business that's completely international now, you know, yeah. the inquiries are coming from all over the world, you know, and it feels like maybe I don't need to travel as much as I have done in the past, kind of, you know, I just, yeah, this, the struggle has always been not to make work that people wanted to buy, the struggle has been getting the people who wanted to buy the work to see it, you know, yes. somehow getting it in front of those people, and, yeah. you know, I've always, my work has always been well appreciated and I've always had, you know, clients and so on. But, you know, to, to grow that or to yeah. find new clients is always the challenge. But now the, the internet gives you that level of exposure. Yeah, that, that unbelievable you exposure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm pleased to hear it. Yeah, but now I need to find a way to make it work for me. Yeah. You know, to make it work from the point of view of, um, not kind of stifling my creativity in a way because it's so all-encompassing and intense. Um, yeah, you know, when something is going crazy on Instagram, it's hard to look away. Yes. And it's a bit overwhelming as well, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's made me feel slightly sick almost, you know. It's like too intense. It's, it's seeing, yeah. yeah, yeah, like we had to turn off the... Uh, notifications and you know when it first things started going viral and you know the iPad would just be pinging every minute and you yeah. know hard to look away and yes yeah. so um, yeah. that's something I haven't you know completely mastered yet is how yes. to find that balance you know. yes I, 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 I I'm not sure anybody has particularly mm. I, the, the last interview I recorded was with them um, Dominic Wilcox, who's had a lot of, um, lot of success on the, if you call it success, but you know mm. his, his stuff gets a lot of traction. Yeah, um, and he, he he finds it very difficult to, yeah. to sort of disentangle himself from it. I think. Yeah. At times. Yeah, I do. Although I let my my wife does most of the um, 
social media interaction. Yeah. Um, so how, how, how do you plan to, to preserve your hmm. creative space? Yes, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I think to probably um, get stuff manufactured elsewhere would be one way of doing it. Yes. So especially the big complicated commissions, you know, that I can end up spending months planning and designing and making and so on, organising. Um, yeah, with the social media, just to try to, yeah, take a bit of a step back from it and um, you know sometimes it's a double-edged sword you know like when we recently posted a video of the light which you've seen I think um, I was really busy at the time you know we posted the video of the light not in an attempt to kind of get loads of interest but that was what happened it just went mad nebula hive nebula ellipse ellipse it's still at the top of my Instagram um yeah, and then suddenly there were just there was an endless stream of inquiries, um, and they all need to be responded to. And, yeah. yeah, and it suddenly it's like God, I really didn't actually need that extra yes. work. I'm trying to concentrate on one thing, and suddenly there's all of these yeah um, offers I can't refuse coming in. Or yeah, you know. and it's very difficult when you've um, when you've been through a period where it's it's mm-hmm. been tough financially. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then, and then you're in a period where you have offers to yeah. to to, to say no isn't it yeah but I have had to say no I've been turning down a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff but you know it's it's often speculative things people want you to to propose work you know right and uh, yes you know 90% of the time it doesn't lead anywhere yes yes that's another thing about the internet isn't it Mm. Um, uh, one thing that my wife finds um, is that there are quite a few people who would exploit artists and the yeah. internet gives them quick channels into yeah but it's not just the internet I think that's just <laughs> yeah it was Fair like point. that before <laughs> point. and um, yeah. actually I think the internet in some ways allows it certainly allowed me to find my own routes to market you know which is something I was doing anyway but it suddenly made it <laughs> turbocharged it or made it yeah. possible yes um, you know to to sell direct to clients and um for clients to find me and, you know so i um i wanted to uh ask you a little bit about the um the future um, yeah. that that sort of hazy yeah. thing that uh, is in front of all of us mm. is, is there a is there a um a particular kind of work or or do 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 you have ambitions about where you'd like to take things or what you'd like to be doing yeah um that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think that one day I would like to move on in a way, you know, to kind of draw a line under this period and take on a new challenge. And yeah, I've fantasized about that in the past, um, particularly when things have been, you know, difficult and I've felt like I've fallen out of love of my kind of self imposed boundaries if you like because I have imposed a lot of restrictions on how I work um, as part of that kind of determined determination to to have a kind of holistic or yeah um, uh, body of work and also to force myself to be inventive because I think that when you 
you know, I think when you um, work from a limited palette, it forces you to to find interesting things to do with that. And yeah, and we didn't touch that much on the inspiration side of things, apart from you know a couple of words about nature and geometry and so on. But I think actually um, electronic music, which is something that was a big part of my youth, has been quite an inspiration. That's interesting. Yeah, in the sort of minimalism and especially in the early days, there was a sort of limited number of um, synthesizers that were used and the way that people could be so infinitely inventive with it. And also, you know, the people that I admired, both in the arts and in music are the ones who had managed to kind of create a language all of their own that was very identifiable to them. I think I've sort of wanted to achieve that myself, you know, whether I have or not, is for someone else to judge, but, you know, that was inspiring to me. Um, but yeah, I think one day I might, uh, I might like to move away and try something that's a bit freer, a bit creatively freer, but, you know, maybe that's a vain hope. Yes. Maybe it's just not, you know, not in my nature, so time well, will tell. Or maybe there is another, another eureka moment around the corner that, that, yeah. that casts you off into a different direction, perhaps. Yeah, maybe it requires to work in materials that are, are not so easily kind of constrained into those sort of perfect, you know, forms that I have yeah. employed so much in my work. Yes. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to do that one day. And I'd like to also, yeah, just find the time to... I, I hope that if I do achieve a level of success that then it might give me the luxury to be able to retreat a bit or, you know, get my stuff manufactured um, professionally, you know, the things that can be, and then... Um, spend my own time making my handmade, going back more to, because a lot of my stuff now is, you know, part kind of cut by CNC machines and so on, and um, yeah, engineered components and so on. So it'd be nice to go back to making more of the handmade kind of, yeah, crafted sculptures. But yeah, at the moment, I don't know really, <laughs> I think, uh, there's a lot of potential avenues to explore. I haven't yeah. really focused on one yet yeah. entirely. Yes. There's still work to be made in the studio. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's been really lovely talking to you, Ivan. Uh, I oh. really appreciate our conversation. Well, thank Likewise. Thank you very much. Uh, fascinating to hear your journey. Um, oh, well, I'm glad. I wasn't sure <laughs> if it would, uh, yeah be an interesting story or not uh, ab absolutely yeah really re really good and um, it's been lovely to uh, take a look in the studio as well great so thank you thank you so there we are Ivan Black what a gentle and inspiring human being I've got a few more episodes up my sleeve and I've not decided yet which to release next so if you want to find out then please subscribe and stay tuned but for now, thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.